now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Every town has a dark side. This is Andrew Fitzgerald from the Every Town podcast, where every single week we dive into insane and mysterious true crime stories, most of which you've never heard of. Stories like the bizarre disappearance of Tyler Davis in Columbus, Ohio, a 29-year-old father trying to find his way back to his hotel when he disappeared and was never heard from again, and Elizabeth Shove from Lugoff, South Carolina, who was abducted from her driveway by a madman and taken to his underground bunker in the woods. And we give you all the details you're interested in hearing about without any fluff or fillers, because ain't nobody got time for that. We cover everything from psychopaths to poltergeists, so go check out the Everytown podcast, because every town, no matter how nice it may seem, has a dark side. Welcome to Human Monsters. Ivan Milot was born on December 27, 1944. There was no real-life Santa Claus to leave his parents a lump of coal, so they were given a piece of shit as a late Christmas gift instead. He was born the fifth of fourteen children, long before his mother's uterus began begging for mercy. At that point, she was so stretched out, her children could have crawled back inside. Margaret was a typical mother of five in the year of Ivan's birth, as much a stranger to common sense as she was to birth control. His father was known as Stephen to his Australian friends, because they couldn't pronounce his Croatian name since there were consonants where vowels should have been. He was a laborer in New South Wales, employed as work became available. His specialty was in the construction trade, but he would undertake other roles when given no alternative. Aside from his immediate family, he felt socially isolated as an immigrant in Australia. He liked living in Australia, but it never quite felt like home. He was an avid Christian and churchgoer, observant of the Catholic faith though his employers were displeased that he would not go to work on Sundays so that he could keep the Sabbath day holy, 
The money he would have made offered no better compensation than his introduction at church to Margaret Elizabeth Piddleston. She was young, beautiful, and came from a middle-class family. He was 35 years old, but she didn't find his age off-putting and was even attracted to him. Even at the age of 16, she was charmed by his awkward advances. He looked down at her shoes to picture her feet bare beneath a protruding pregnant belly. Well, that would come later, and he would get an eyeful of that for 14 years. Stephen was also happy that she came from a close-knit family because he was alone in Australia and missed his family ties in Croatia. Her family had some reservations about the age gap, but they were pleased that he intended to marry her rather than just use her to have 14 kids, something you should never be obvious about. He was a gentleman who showed respect to his elders, which also won points with their family. When he sought their blessing to marry Margaret, he made sure not to mention that she would become an 80s-era arcade game for reproduction, with him providing his sperm as pocket change without the drug dealer wearing a fedora with a Hawaiian shirt lurking nearby. This was the conservative family values crowd, and he had to play those cards close to his chest. Stephen and Margaret got married the year they met, and the sweatshop baby factory was open for business. The difference was that Margaret didn't get paid, and she got more washroom breaks. The first child was born before her 17th birthday, so that the baby could cry out the candles. Eventually, her stomach would resemble that old basketball that won't bounce anymore. Stephen's Catholic faith dictated that it's better to have more children than you can afford to feed than to use a damn condom. I'm a Roman Catholic And have been since before I was born And the one thing they say about Catholics is They'll take you as soon as you're warm You don't have to be a six-footer You don't have to have a great brain you don't have to have any clothes on your A Catholic the moment that came Because Every sperm is sacred Every sperm is great If a sperm is wasted God gets quite irate I'll stop mocking the Catholic Church 
when the Pope apologizes to all the people who were sexually abused by their pedophile priests. So far, that apologia remains overdue. There was no family planning in the Milot household. The babies came down the pipe fast, and they dealt with their growing brood like it was a reproductive equivalent of the chocolate factory episode of I Love Lucy. Ultimately, they found a way to get enough food to feed their faces. At first, they settled in the suburb of Guildford, just outside of Sydney. Unlike the Jacksons, who raised ten children in a two-bedroom house, the Milots were a bunch of lightweights who decided to relocate to accommodations that were comparably more spacious. They relocated to Bosley Park and then to Liverpool, where four of his sons became the Australian Beatles. Just kidding. They enjoyed their new digs so much, they decided to stay. The outback was within walking distance, and Stephen, having been an outdoorsman back in Croatia, was pleased to have such convenient access to the Australian wilderness, where thousands of kangaroos lie in wait to beat the shit out of him. Fun fact! Koala bears often resort to rape to conceive. The way they see it, whether through consent or coercion, they'll have her screaming either way. Such is an example of the dangers of Australia's indigenous wildlife. Stephen could be beaten, bitten, or stung at any time, but he was willing to take on the risk. He would not only hunt in his spare time, but he would teach his sons how to shoot and encourage them to stalk wild game. He trained them in the use of firearms as soon as they could walk. Gee, it's hard to believe Ivan would grow up to be such a menace after his upbringing. The boys hunted before daybreak to provide the family with meat. The girls did the housework. This was as traditional as it got for a white family. The children attended school, but they found life at home more stimulating. Ivan was no smarter than his siblings, though he did take more interest in his studies than they. Nevertheless, he didn't apply himself enough to achieve high grades. Ivan and his siblings didn't make any friends outside their household. They looked out for one another, attacking bullies viciously. Stephen would respond to complaints about his children's violent behavior by violently lashing out at his children, sending them back to school with bruises and scars. Somehow the guns and beatings failed to drive the violent tendencies out of his children, and so it remained that pushing around a Milot child would not be worth your while if you were one of their peers. One place where the children were never recalcitrant was at home. Stephen would backhand them so hard they would fall to the floor, where a male koala would run up to them and fuck their face. Just kidding. Ivan was not exempted from corporal punishment, but he did not squeeze into the victim's suit without popping a button or two. Sure, his father would hit him, but Ivan would scowl in response. He wouldn't allow his father the satisfaction of squeezing out as much as one tear. Eventually, Ivan and his siblings viewed the beatings as the consequence for having a good time, like how white-collar criminals view fines as a business expense. Margaret lived in a bubble of self-delusion, believing that nothing outsiders told her about her children could be true. 
as she saw it, they were all little cherubs and could do no wrong. Fun fact, she was wrong. The police eventually got word that the Maylot children were wreaking havoc in the neighborhood. The problem was, it was difficult to identify them in such large numbers. They would have to arrest one to ascertain their identity. The siblings would also cover for one another, so culpability was hard to discern. Stephen was hired to work as a wharf laborer, meaning the family would have to move again. In the new house, the children slept on triple bunk beds divided into two bedrooms. They lived in a more rural location now, and Stephen was intent on starting a small-scale farm. Stephen put his freeloading children to work, and woe betide any child who reacted with defiant indolence. They did their farm chores amid school and hunting. Between the religion, the farm work, school, and the lack of privacy, there was no way to masturbate. Ivan was the strongest, the best with numbers, and also demonstrated competence as a leader. He was the most respected child by his parents. Ivan also distinguished himself among his brothers with violence. He would fight them, taking it beyond the limits of a typical scuffle between teenage boys. He broke bones. He would beat them into submission. They deferred to him and didn't harbor any resentment. Their father rose them in a Darwinist environment, so they were used to living within a hierarchy structurally reinforced by force. There was Stephen, Margaret, and then Ivan. The farm was not profitable, and some of the Milot children dropped out of school to work full-time. Sometimes Ivan would organize the boys into a posse of thieves. If they got caught stealing, Ivan would take the blame, notifying the police that he alone hatched the plot. Ivan was placed in the Boys Town Residential School at the age of 13 for having run afoul of the law. Ivan didn't find the conditions as Dickensian as his fellow inmates. He succeeded academically, enjoyed the three squares a day, and even found the farm work he was forced to do to be much lighter than what he had to do at home. He eventually positioned himself at the top of the student hierarchy through violence and intimidation. There was some corporal punishment, but it was a slap on the wrist compared to what his father meted out. When Ivan returned home, he found nothing had changed. Oddly, he was more motivated to do his chores than ever. He missed his siblings more than his mother and father. The siblings were very close to one another, to the point that speculation arose about the nature of their relationships, with some believing that incestuous relations may have transpired among them. This was never proven, however. It likely arose from the fact that they were backwoods folk who had sullied their reputation with criminal behavior and were viewed as human garbage by outsiders, or as bogans, the Australian equivalent of redneck. It didn't help that once it became legal for them to do so, all the children dropped out of school. It got to the point where the family was struggling financially to such a degree that the boys would often take on work outside the home on other properties, where their experience in agriculture was in demand. Still, they struggled. The kids began to re-immerse themselves in crime. 
robberies and burglaries brought in quick cash. The police suspected it was the Milot children, and this time around they could not leave the need for justice neglected. The Milots were committing serious crimes now, felonies even. Like adult prisons, Boys Town was a con college for Ivan, where he learned about how to commit crimes with which he had little experience, and how to hone his skills as a criminal. So much for rehabilitation. He remained the leader of the Milot crew, and his confidence grew with every offense. Getting away with crime gave him a rush, and he shouldered the consequences with grace and expert problem-solving abilities. Throughout the 1960s, Ivan was in and out of prison, spending as much time in the Hoosgau as on the street. He was becoming a true outlaw. His siblings were still involved in his criminal enterprises, and sometimes they went to prison with him, but most of the time he shouldered that burden for them. <coughs> One of their most common offenses was stealing cars to sell to chop shops who paid cash for parts. Ivan became the alpha male in prison just as he had in Boys Town and at home. He encountered many opponents, but fear was never one of them. One of his brothers was sent to prison following a botched bank robbery with Ivan and another of his other siblings. Ivan successfully fled the scene after police arrived. Ivan escaped in a taxi. When the driver arrived at his destination, he paid him with a shotgun slug to his spine. The driver survived, but he would be paralyzed for the rest of his life from the neck down. He didn't remember Ivan's face, and an innocent man was charged and convicted for the crime. The next bank robbery benefited from better planning, and this time Ivan and his siblings got away with it. The police suspected them of being responsible, but could not prove it. The family were very careful as they went about their business from that point onward. They were cautious about discharging their firearms while hunting, since none of them had a license to possess and discharge a gun. Nobody had seen Ivan cry before the day when his little sister Margaret who had become his favorite member of the family and something akin to a daughter, was badly injured in a car accident. She succumbed to her injuries and died, and it made a profound impact on him. He withdrew into himself. He was not as focused on his criminal activities as he once was. He became an insomniac. He would fill the empty spaces where sleep had once dwelled with late-night road trips. When he worked... He was just phoning it in, investing minimal effort. He was a shell of the man he once was. Less than a month after Margaret's death, his old instincts began to return. He had been helpless against her demise, and he hated that feeling. The only way to react against helplessness, as he saw it, was to act. He wanted to reassert control over his life. He was unable to assert control over Margaret's life when she died, but he could dominate the living. In late 1971, he found himself passing hitchhikers during his nightly drives. Most of the time, he either paid them no heed or he would flip them the bird. 
many of them were women, and it occurred to him that they were putting themselves in danger by thumbing a ride from strangers. They were ready-made victims. He spotted two female hitchhikers near Liverpool. He invited them in and told them he would drive them wherever they wanted to go. He said his compensation was their company. The girls felt safe because there were two of them and one of him. There was no way for them to know that this was a man who took on the worst of the worst in prison and crowned himself king. He drove them to the most isolated areas of the outback, telling them he was taking shortcuts. Once he had them in the hinterlands, he brought out a knife and some rope. He kept one Sheila hostage to ensure that the other would not escape. He tied both girls up in the back of the car. He used his knife to cut their clothes off. Both girls struggled and screamed, but in those parts, they were about as likely to elicit a response as if they were in outer space. Crocodile Dundee was not nearby, hiding behind a dead kangaroo with a rifle. To put an end to their screaming, Ivan said, You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to kill you. Won't scream much if I cut your throats, will you? Now that they were naked, he paused to decide between them. He chose the girl closest to him and raped her. Both Sheilas were screaming, but the engine was still running and was nearly loud enough to drown them out. Once he climaxed, he was spent and could not summon the mojo to rape the other. He threatened to inflict further harm on them if they didn't keep their mouths shut. He cut their bindings. He got back behind the wheel and drove. The girls put on what remained of their tattered clothing. They wept and refused to make eye contact with Ivan throughout the rest of the commute. Their weeping began to grate on his nerves. As if they were children, he offered them a sweetie to cheer them up. Pop, what say I buy you gals a bottle of pop? He pulled into a gas station to buy the drinks. Once he was out of sight, they fled from the truck and hid behind a thicket of bushes. When he returned to the truck, he saw that the girls had left. He took a look around, shrugged, and drove away. After police collected the girls from the gas station and... As many of you are aware, I am diabetic. It resulted in me losing my right foot and half of my sight. I have to take a ton of medication and inject insulin twice a day. It happened as a consequence of years of unhealthy eating. Don't be like me. Eat a sensible and healthy diet. I know what you're thinking. I neither have the time nor the inclination to prepare balanced, nutritious, and delicious meals. What do I do? This is where HelloFresh comes to the rescue. With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. Ditch the meal planning woes and dive into HelloFresh's biggest menu yet with over 50 recipes and even more market items to choose from every single week. 
Make delicious food a priority this summer with quick, convenient recipes delivered right to your door. Just choose your meals and select a delivery date. HelloFresh handles all the meal planning, shopping, and most of the prep. So all you have to do is open your box and get cooking. Wake up your taste buds and get summer ready with balanced, fit, and wholesome recipes. Chock full of fresh produce and under 650 calories per serving. That's one I use the most. HelloFresh's line of kid-friendly recipes are picky eater proof and perfect for families looking to shake up their dinner recipe rotations while school's out for the summer. Having embraced HelloFresh, I can now enjoy guilt-free meals, which are not only better for me, but reduce the time spent in the kitchen. Now I have more time for podcasting. Go to HelloFresh.com slash HumanMonstersApps, that's H-U-M-A-N-M-O-N-S-T-E-R-S-A-P-P-S, for free appetizers for life. One appetizer item per box while subscription is active. That's free appetizers for life at HelloFresh.com slash HumanMonstersApps. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable. Where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Brought them to the police station to file their complaint. They realized, based on all the intel they gathered, that Ivan Milot was the offender. He was wanted for another violent crime, so there was some urgency in tracking him down. The Sheilas were questioned repeatedly, and since memory can be unreliable especially in the aftermath of trauma, where the brain may patch over details to prevent, to some degree, the painful recall that can lead to re-experiencing the events in question. Some aspects of their stories changed with each telling. Bearing this in mind, 
The officers wondered if they were just vindictive ex-girlfriends, hell-bent on avenging some petty slight perpetrated against them by Milot. Ivan's family informed him of the police investigation, and for the first time since Margaret's death, he felt alive. The finality of her death was non-negotiable and unequivocal, but he could force his will on the living to do his bidding and shift the levers of life in tandem with his every whim. During his time of mourning, he didn't care if he lived or died because Margaret's absence left his life feeling incomplete. Now there was something to live for. When the police questioned the Milots regarding Ivan's whereabouts, they told them he committed suicide after the death of Margaret. Ivan scrounged together enough money for a flight to New Zealand and went on the lam. It would be decades before he could appear as an extra in Lord of the Rings, so Ivan kept himself fed in New Zealand as an itinerant laborer doing the same kind of menial work he had done on his family's farm. He was paid under the table and was entirely undocumented. Any law enforcement agency seeking him from outside the country would find him to be untraceable. He enjoyed this life with all its freedoms. He did miss his family, though. Initially, he refrained from so much as writing letters to them, but eventually he came to miss them so much he decided to assume the risks of returning home. Sure enough, he was detained shortly after his plane landed and remanded to jail. The bank robbery case went to trial, but the prosecutor could not provide adequate evidence that Ivan Milot was responsible, so the jury returned with a not guilty verdict. Milot was tried for the rape charges levied against him by the two hitchhikers. Their stories had changed since then, and nobody could prove that his claims that they had had consensual, if regrettable, sex with him were true. So once again he was spared from consequence. One asset Ivan had in his favor in the courtroom was his unflappable demeanor. He had taken down men with homicide in their eyes. He wasn't afraid of some pompous lawyer whose only weapon was his 50-cent words. He also wasn't afraid of doing time in prison. Compared to the impoverished circumstances of his family's home, it was practically Shangri-La. Ivan returned to his family's home, where he helped with chores and supplemented their income with money of his own made elsewhere. Fun fact, it has been noted that the number one occupation for serial killers is long-haul truck driving. For one thing, truck stops are replete with prostitutes seeking johns to service in their rig sleepers. Prostitutes make for easy victims since they are isolated with their trick and vulnerable to anything he might pull. Also, since truckers are usually on the road, they can discard a body far from their home jurisdiction and be thousands of miles away by the time the body is found. It is ideal for someone who wants to commit murder and never get caught. Since women are more likely to become victims of serial killers than men, it's a recipe for mass murder. Ivan Milot was hired to drive long hauls across Australia. 
The routes he drove took him on the road for days and even weeks on end. The highway hypnosis of those endless hours of driving that followed the senseless death of Margaret brought him in tune with the road, as if, having eaten all that asphalt, he had intertwined it with his DNA. When Ivan had free time, he spent it hunting or with his siblings. By then, some of them had married and were breeding, but they would find time for him when they could. Stephen was stricken with bowel cancer, so now Ivan became the primary breadwinner for the household as his father's health continued to worsen. It didn't help that Ivan's brother David suffered brain damage due to a motorcycle accident and required assistive care, which took up much of his mother's time. After his father's death in 1983, a life insurance payout provided more financial stability for Margaret Sr., and Ivan was liberated to begin a life of his own. Ivan grew tired of driving truck and yearned to work with his hands. He landed a job with the New South Wales Road and Traffic Authority. His charge was to drive the roads looking for cracks, potholes, and other damage and submit orders for repair. Ivan's relationships with women seldom lingered beyond ejaculation. It was different with a woman named Karen, who had been dating one of his cousins. He developed feelings for her above the waist, and he was determined to do whatever it took to endear himself to her. She became pregnant with his cousin's child, and he would help her by performing tasks that are difficult for a childbearing woman once the baby bump becomes cumbersome. When she spoke, he listened and they eventually developed such a bond that she fell in love with him, and he, her. They had Maury-style lie detector sex. Ivan became a true romantic, even going as far as to envision their life together in intricate detail. He owned a caravan and began nesting in preparation for their life inside. He was frugal with his money and had amassed a substantial amount in savings to give them a comfortable head start. Ivan's cousin and the rest of his maternal relatives were outraged once Ivan and Karen's affair came to light. They foresaw a parental dynamic that would need financial reinforcement with them footing the bill. They were middle class economically and culturally whereas they perceived Ivan as a bogan from the outback. Ultimately, they were not willing to take on this responsibility and wrote the couple off in the wake of their estrangement. They may have prejudged Ivan as incomplete, like lumber in want of sanding and varnish, but he proposed marriage to Karen and vowed to father her child as if it were his own. Family had always been sacred to him, and he had taken on a paternal role for his siblings, so he assumed the position with a background of experience measured in years. Having reevaluated Ivan in this lens, they had a change of heart. He proved that he could provide for Karen and her child, and given that that was their primary concern, they warmed to the idea. With or without their approval, Ivan and Karen married in 1985. 
Several relatives were absent from the ceremony due to acrimony among Ivan's siblings due to conflict over who would provide care for his father during his illness. And some other family members were still sore at him for stealing his cousin's girlfriend. Eventually, old transgressions were forgiven, and Karen was welcomed into Ivan's family. Karen gave birth to a boy who was named Jason. Ivan stepped up as promised, even going as far as to adopt the boy shortly after he was born. He was nurturing, caring for the boy when he was unsettled, sometimes even taking him for drives when he was unable to stop crying. Jason completed Ivan's life in ways that were unprecedented in the eyes of everybody who knew him well. He still worked for long periods of time. It got to the point where Karen felt, on occasion, like a single mother. Ivan was very particular about the upkeep of the house. His mother ran a tight ship when it came to housework, and he expected the same standard from Karen. She was often lonely, but she had Jason to keep her company, and Ivan's relatives would stop by to check on her and even offer advice and provisions, like groceries. At times, it became invasive to Karen. Her family hadn't been so close-knit, and she felt smothered at times. Complaints about Ivan's long hours spent working were without warrant. He was providing for a family now, and they were saving up for a house. The caravan was small and cramped, providing little space for all their belongings. They also wanted to prevent the impending cabin fever that can afflict people living in such tight quarters. Ivan groused about their financial demands, even when it came to necessities like clothing and food. Karen felt emotionally neglected due to Ivan's absences. When he was home, he was distant, as if dropping by because he'd forgotten something. One consolation was the attention he paid to Jason. He doted on him, attending to his every need. Karen could never doubt that Ivan took his paternal responsibilities seriously. Weeks after Jason's first birthday, Ivan elected to use the money he'd saved to buy a house. He did not consult Karen when looking at available properties. He felt that since it was he who was earning the money, it should be he alone who made that decision. He was used to people relying on him, and ultimately, he felt Karen could not be trusted to make a practical decision when it came to such matters. Ivan and Karen moved into a two-bedroom house in the Sydney suburb of Eagle Vale. It was located close to the countryside, which contributed to Ivan's decision to choose it as his family's domicile. Ivan vowed that he would pare down his hours to spend more time with Karen and Jason. He wanted to live a more conventional home life. She became concerned when she discovered his extensive gun collection. She didn't grow up with his background, so she only associated firearms with violence. It was hardly endearing that he forced her to eke out a meager existence on his shoestring budget while he paid top dollar for guns. She conveyed to him that she didn't want Jason to be influenced by his ownership and use of guns, and he agreed to conceal them from the boy. When she asked him to get rid of them altogether, he refused. The way he saw it, they were necessary and that he would use them to protect his family and hunt for their meat. Still, 
She couldn't understand why he wanted to own so many. She insisted that he put a stop to his gun buying, and he capitulated. Ivan was vexed after having lost this battle. He was not used to being opposed, and even more unaccustomed to losing. From that point onward, he would be obstinate in the face of her blowback. He had fought for the Alpha position all his life, and he wasn't about to cede it to a woman who was only 16 years old when they met. That was how he changed. Karen changed by becoming more assertive with Ivan. This, as he saw it, was taking it too far. He hit her one day. He once vowed he would never raise his hands to her. She remembered that as she lay on the floor with her ears ringing. He hadn't even hit her with all his strength. Had he done so, she might not have remained conscious. Strangely, he was apologetic about it afterwards and helped her to her feet. He was pale, like he was going to be sick. He was still apologizing after the conclusion of his next shift. She saw that he was sincere in conveying his remorse, so she forgave him. However, these incidents became more frequent. Every time they argued, he would slap her, push her, or drag her around by her hair. He would blame her for it, saying she deliberately provoked him to anger. The beatings became nearly routine, and he graduated to closed fist punches. As a result, their relationship deteriorated. Ivan resumed his gun collecting. He started buying the kinds of machine guns that are normally only discharged by military personnel. When Karen told him he was gun crazy, he gave her a backhand to the jaw for saying so. He took Jason on hunting expeditions with him, and Jason began to emulate Ivan in disposition and his mannerisms. Ivan and Karen's sex life was as dead as Stephen's colon, so he went elsewhere to satisfy his carnal urges. He began an affair with his brother Wally's wife, Maureen. Karen confronted Ivan about it, and he responded with violence. She was too afraid to oppose him, so she reluctantly accepted his infidelity. February 14, 1987. Ivan returned home from a shift to find his home empty. Karen had had her fill the abuse and infidelity. She took everything except his guns. Ivan didn't stand a chance in divorce court. The domestic abuse was an asset for Karen for once, and she got both alimony and full custody of Jason. Ivan would have voluntarily supported them if she had just asked, but she left it to the courts, and he was furious. A screening of David Cronenberg's The Brood would have been well-timed for this occasion. Despite all he put Karen through, he considered the breakdown of their marriage to be all her fault, because that's the kind of conclusion a narcissist comes to. Two years after the divorce, Ivan had resigned from his job with the New South Wales Road and Traffic Authority. He did this because his wages were being garnished so that Karen could collect the alimony. His employment situation at this point was reminiscent of what he was doing in New Zealand, working odd jobs and getting paid under the table. With his income undocumented, there was no way the courts could get their hands back in his pockets.
Ivan took to the road, but not in the capacity of driving truck. He would pick up hitchhikers and rob them, leaving them on the side of the road afterwards. Waving his handgun around was enough to convince them to part with their money. After Karen and the courts stripped him of his power, it was a much-needed, empowering experience. Power is an addictive drug, and with every dose, tolerance increases to the point where too much is never enough. The incarnation of Ivan Milot as husband and family man was dead. Now he was an itinerant laborer during the day and hunter for hitchhiking prey at night. In late December, Confest was held, a cultural festival that is held in Australia every year. It attracted a lot of hitchhikers. That year they were advised against hitchhiking and to take precautions while doing so. They were told to travel in pairs to ensure they would be safe. Since there were many missing person reports submitted regarding people who disappeared while hitchhiking alone. James Gibson and Deborah Everest were natives of Victoria. They were 19 years old and very much in love. Theirs was the kind of fresh and heady love that inspires incels to carry out mass shootings. They were en route to Confest and opted for frugality when managing their limited funds. So they hitchhiked instead of taking a bus or a train. Ivan Milot picked up the couple. He was charming and loquacious, making conversation as he drove them to no man's land, out in the middle of the wilderness. They had no intentions of exploring the Belanglo. As Ivan drove into the state forest, James and Deborah became uneasy. James demanded that he drive back to the main road. Ivan ignored their protests. James had had enough. He ordered Ivan to stop the truck. Ivan slammed on the brakes abruptly. James flew forward and his head slammed into the dashboard. Ivan pulled his hunting knife out and brandished it in James's direction. He stuck it into his back, piercing through his skin all the way to his spinal cord. James was instantly paralyzed from the waist down. He flopped forward to the dashboard again. Deborah screamed, and Ivan threatened her with the knife. He began driving again. Ivan would point the knife at James threateningly if he made too much noise. Ivan, known as... Welcome to the I Can't Sleep podcast with Benjamin Boster. If you're tired of sleepless nights... You'll love the I Can't Sleep podcast. I help quiet your mind by reading random articles from across the web to bore you to sleep with my soothing voice. Each episode provides enough interesting content to hold your attention, and then your mind lets you drift off. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's I Can't Sleep with Benjamin Boster.
Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out The Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of... Classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh. Stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much-needed Zs, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. Bill, to the couple, stopped the truck. Bill got out of the truck and walked around to Deborah's side. He grabbed her by the hair and pulled her outside. She was so afraid she couldn't animate her legs to leave the car, so he dragged and carried her out. As she lay in the dirt, he walked away and returned with rope. He kept the knife in his hand as he bound her. He passed the blade across her body to remind her of the consequence of opposing him. He dragged her by the bindings and took her into the forest beyond James's field of vision. Ivan wanted James to see what was happening, so he dragged him over to the lip of the forest and propped him up against a tree so he could get a generous view of the proceedings. James tried negotiating with Bill, offering what little resources they had so that he would let them go. It turned out that no one could put a price on what Bill wanted from Deborah. Unlike Karen, Deborah would not prevail over Ivan. He positioned James so that he would have a front row seat to whatever it was that he would unleash upon Deborah. Ivan cut her clothes off until she was naked, save for a few strips of fabric left beneath her. Ivan raped her as she screamed and wept. She tried to break from the bindings, but Ivan was a seasoned pro when it came to fastening a knot. There were more dingoes than good Samaritans in the area, so there was nobody to respond to her bellows. As Ivan raped her, he would turn around and gloat in James's direction, telling him how lucky he was to have a girl like her as his mate while pawing at her body. Once Ivan had his fill, he took a break. 
Deborah had screamed herself into a rasp. She was traumatized and went into shock. James was crying. Ivan began striking Deborah, but she was in a trance, barely there. He slapped, pinched, and poked her for the vocalizations he craved, the Ivan Milot equivalent of an aria. Frustrated that he wasn't eliciting the sounds he most wanted to hear, he began punching her. She screamed him an encore. As they reeled, he recuperated. He drank a couple of beers from his cooler. Following that, he pulled out his rifle and practiced by shooting the beer cans, neither of which was a Foster's because it turns out Foster's is not really Australian for beer. He was right on target with both shots. After all the years of hunting, he was a crack shot. The rifle would be left to cool as Ivan returned to James's future grave with his knife. Ivan plunged his knife into James's stomach. From there, he cut his legs. He pierced him between his ribs. He slowly and methodically cut him up and down his body, like an amateur surgeon. Deborah was catatonic at this point, unaware of what was happening. Ivan twisted the blade. James screamed with such volume and desperation that he barely recognized it as his own voice. Deborah snapped out of her delirium and became hysterical at the sight of James bleeding with wounds all over his body. She began to weep uncontrollably. She screamed as Ivan rotated the blade within James's stomach. Ivan smiled at her as he did so, stabbing James repeatedly until he was assured of his demise. Drawing James's blood, left one part of Ivan's anatomy engorged with his own, and he was in the mood to have another go at Deborah. He pinned her to the ground and raped her once again. She fought back by biting his arm. Ivan retaliated by punching her in and out of consciousness. He would knock her out with one punch and wake her up with another. He broke the bones of her face as he slammed her head backwards into tree roots, fracturing her skull. He raped and beat her from coitus to necrophilia. He removed the ropes, but otherwise left the scene as it was, with James in the fetal position and Deborah spread-eagled on the ground. He covered their corpses with some natural detritus, so that they wouldn't be easily spotted by passing motorists and hunters, if there were any. Scavengers were likely to tear at their bodies as flies established a nursery of maggots, so their remains were likely to deteriorate rapidly under the broiling Australian sun. Ivan drove back to the site and dropped the possessions he had taken from James and Deborah off, including a camera whose roll of film disclosed who the owner had been, which, in turn, gave an indication of where he was since a backpacker discovered the camera near the body dump site. Ivan was getting careless. January 20th, 1991. 21-year-old Simone Schmidel was a German backpacker tourist. She and her mother arranged to meet in Australia. The problem was, her mother didn't comprehend the scale of the Australian landscape and booked a flight to Melbourne, which was about a nine-hour drive away from Simone's location, which was closer to Sydney. 
Simone took a train to one of Sydney's suburbs on this day and began thumbing down the highway. After a protracted wait, a silver 4x4 pulled over. A smiling man leaned out his window and asked her if she wanted a ride. She was delighted by his offer to drive her all the way to Melbourne. The conversation was stilted because, though Simone was fluent in English, she was unfamiliar with Australian slangs and colloquialisms. Eventually, the conversation petered out altogether. Suddenly, the driver stopped the truck. Hours later, Ivan had Simone in the woods. He raped her. He stabbed his way up and down the topography of her body. Once she was dead, he covered her with sticks to spare her the indignity of animal predation, as if he hadn't already subjected her to endless indignities. By the time her body was found, she had deteriorated to bare bones. Her dental records in Germany were used to confirm the identity of her remains. It wasn't difficult to identify stabbing as the cause of death, for there were telltale scratch marks on her bones. British national Paul Onions was on vacation in Australia. He initially arrived in Sydney. He struggled to find work as an air conditioning repairman. Given Australia's hot climate, such technicians were never in short supply, so that sector of the job market was flooded. The money he saved for the trip was dwindling, so he needed to find some kind of job soon. He was informed by locals he had befriended that his best bet, especially when it came to working under the table, was to work for a farm picking produce during the harvest season, which was already underway. There was plenty of rural real estate in New South Wales where he could find the kind of work none of the native Aussies wanted to do. Transportation options were limited to non-existent when it came to the outback, so he was left with no other recourse but to walk. Paul discovered the hard way that the outback seemed to go on forever. You could walk for an entire day and never encounter another person. It's like if a desert wasteland was a treadmill. It could be dangerous considering the intense heat in the wildlife, much of which was poised with enough aggression and or venom to take a man like him down. Even the kangaroos could have kicked his ass. Fuck around and find out, Paul. Like most people who have no experience with desert climates, Paul assumed it would be hot at night, but it wasn't. It was so cold he began to shiver. He desperately needed salvation in the form of an automobile. His experience with Australians was that they were friendly, hospitable, and accommodating, so he figured there had to be somebody who would rescue him. And at that point... He truly needed to be saved. The crocodile dundees of the land, where were they? You can't always rely on stereotypes. Paul began to lose hope when his silver 4x4 came rumbling down the road. It pulled over and a man leaned out the driver's side window. He said, you need a ride? Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I was worried I was going to be out here all night. Ain't no need to worry about that. Folks around these parts take care of one another, even if you are some palm tourist stamping around and scaring up the snakes. Paul got into the truck. Paul said, 
Snakes? The driver laughed. Man, you're easy. I'm just fooling with you. Ain't no snakes out there going to bother on the road. Not unless they want to become flat snakes. Well, thanks for the ride anyway. I didn't fancy standing out there until morning. Ain't no problem, buddy. The driver shook his hand with a strong, vice-like grip, squeezing hard enough to warrant an x-ray. After they got better acquainted, the driver said, I'm Bill. What do they call you back in merry old England? Oh, I'm Paul. Nice to meet you, Paul. I'm Bill. What brings you to my neck of the woods? Well, I'm looking for work, you see, out on the farms. I hear that they're looking for berry pickers for the harvest. Bill slapped Paul on the chest so hard he nearly broke a rib. Well, damn, mate. Guess you aren't scared of a little hard work. Paul was still coughing from the impact of Bill's slap on his lungs. He squeezed out, as they say, no rest for the wicked. Bill said, ha, no rest for the... I like that. Bill was very tactile. He struck Paul on the shoulder with enough force to dislodge a chip if there ever had been one there. Suddenly, Bill's mirth fell into a cycle of decay. He said, Of course, you wouldn't catch me working out there with all those damned slant eyes. Paul wasn't comfortable with racist rhetoric like that, but he felt it wasn't his place to contradict the man since he had been kind enough to give him a ride at a time when his survival was at stake. Bill wasn't finished. Migrants. They're ruining this country. Crawling out of their mud huts and coming over here where we've got civilization so they can grab as much quick cash as they can before heading home. Looters. That's what I'd call them. Being as diplomatic as possible, Paul said, I don't know anything about that, I'm afraid. Oh, I ain't talking about you, mate. Don't you worry. You palms... You've got hot and cold running water back home, roofs over your heads, cars, all the real civilization stuff that sets us apart from the savages. I don't mind you coming over and taking a job from a hard-working Aussie, because your lot will pay it back when one of us comes over there. That's a fair trade. But the blacks and the Chinese and the Jews, they're parasites. They're ruining this country. That's what they're doing. Paul was dying for Bill to change the subject. I'm just on holiday. I'm afraid I don't know anything about what's happening here. That's all right, mate. That's all right. Wouldn't expect you to. Wouldn't expect me to know what's going on where you're from either. The important thing is, we white folks have to look out for each other. That's why I picked you up. Sure as hell wouldn't have picked you up if I thought you were one of them Chinese. Well, as I said, I do appreciate the ride. I don't suppose you know any farms out here that are hiring right now? Of course I do. Of course I do. I'll drop you out by one of them fruit farms north of the Blanglo, where they're needing folk. Paul grew uneasy. They had driven for hours with no semblance of civilization in sight. He didn't know Bill at all, and had no idea what he was capable of. It dawned on him that he may have made a huge mistake by going it alone in the country. Bill pretty much confirmed that when he said, You know, we don't get many hitchhikers out this way anymore. Why might that be? Well, most local folks, they've got their cars. And most visitors, 
Well, they stick to their places, you know? The cities and the beaches. Not many tourists brave enough to come out here. Well, I don't believe I've ever been accused of bravery before. I think I'm mostly just desperate. Ha! You and me both, mate. Nobody's out here because they want to be. Ain't a place folks come to. It's a place folks go through, you know? Nothing here for them. Of course, them that know the Blanglo can see the beauty of it. A place where you can do what you want with nobody about. Hunting's good if you know how to shoot. Hell, even if you can't shoot worth a damn, the hunting's still good. Paul began to wonder if he was jumping into conclusions. He was probably worrying for nothing. He wondered if Bill was just a nice guy who was driving him well out of his way just to help him out. It was possible. Paul said, You know, it didn't even occur to me that people might hunt out here. I'd have thought it would be a nature preserve or something. Bill chuckled. Nature preserve? The only thing preserving you from nature out here is a gun. Kangas will kick your guts out as soon as you look at them. Snakes will turn you inside out with a bite. Spiders will make you wish the snakes got you. You went wandering along the road up here as you did back by town. You'd never see morning again, mate. This sent a chill down Paul's spine. He said, I had no idea it was so dangerous. Dangerous? Nah, mate, that's just natural for you. Bill punctuated this with a slap to Paul's knee, felt by chiropractors around the world. Bill continued, Ain't any more dangerous than gravity. You step off a cliff, you're going to fall. You step into the bush, you're going to meet something that wants to snack on you. That's just the world. If you want to talk about danger, then you need to start talking about the folks that live out there. Crazies, the lot of them. Paul said, Are you pulling my leg again? Wish I was, mate. Paul's anxiety returned with a flourish as he looked beyond the windshield and found himself in what appeared in his paranoid perspective to be a world of hostility. He said, So, real people are living out there in that jungle? More than you'd think, mate. Folks living off the land, keeping to themselves, ducking the law. Outback, yeah? That's where the outlaws hide out. It occurred to Paul that Bill was having fun with him, scaring him on purpose, like someone telling ghost stories around a campfire. Bill did nothing to allay Paul's fears when he said, Folks out there will rob you soon as you look at them. Ought to be careful with yourself. Don't go wandering too far from town. Don't go taking rides from strangers. Paul refused to play into this fear-mongering. He said, You know... Taking all that into account, given all the awful people I might have met out here at night, I'm very lucky to have found you. Oh, no, mate. Bill struck Paul's leg hard enough that Paul's grandchildren would inherit the bruise. He said, I'm the one who was lucky to find you. There were ominous undertones behind this declaration. Paul said, What do you mean, Bill? My name's not Bill. A renaissance for Paul's paranoia was well underway. He caught a glimpse of a gun in Bill's lap. Out of some warped sense of reassurance, Bill said, Don't know that you've ever been robbed before, but it's real simple. I figure you'll take to it like a natural, mate. 
Paul decided to cooperate with this man so that though he would lose his money and belongings, he would at least emerge with his life. Paul said, what, what do you want me to do? The man who called himself Bill pulled the truck over. He said, I'll be keeping your bag in case you've got anything good hidden in there, but you need to get every penny you've got out of your pockets right now. Lose that watch of yours, too. Whatever you say, Bill grabbed Paul by the ear and took a closer look at him. He said, you palms are all like women. You got any jewelry on? Bill pulled on Paul's shirt with so much force, he tore out some of his chest hair. He was looking for a necklace. Paul said, no, I don't wear any. Bill dug his gun into Paul's temple. He said, hurry up, wallet, money. Don't try and hide anything or I'll have to go looking for it. And you don't want that, do you, mate? Sorry. Right, yes. Bill drilled the gun into Paul's shoulder. Hurry up. I'm trying to... As Paul fidgeted with his wallet, Bill rose the gun to Paul's face and said, I said, hurry your ass up, mate, or I'm going to... As if on autopilot, panic propelled Paul out of the truck, whereupon he ran. He heard gunshots coming from Bill's direction. He also heard laughter. It was all a big joke to Bill. A car came along driven by a mother with her children as passengers. Paul dashed out into the road and halted her by stepping out in front of her car. He jumped in the car and ordered her to drive with no explanation. He frightened them. He was hysterical and bloody. Giving as much clarity of which he was capable in that moment, he said, He's trying to kill me. Please get me out of here. He's got a gun. You've got to help me. The terror in his eyes and the blood on his clothes convinced her that he was not a delusional paranoic. Something terrible had happened. She looked out the window and saw a man pointing a gun in her car's direction. She mashed the accelerator, driving at top speed. She eventually made a U-turn and drove back to a city. Backpackers Gabor Nogbauer and Anya Habshid had been staying at an inn for backpackers over Christmas in Sydney. On Boxing Day, they decided to depart for Darwin with a stopover in Adelaide. They had heard about the man who had been murdering young backpackers, but they weren't afraid. They figured that since they were not traveling alone, they would minimize their risk. Gabor was found dead. He had been shot several times. He was used as target practice, essentially. He had been shot dozens of times. He was sprawled out afterwards and covered in detritus. The attack on Anya was unprecedented in its brutality. There were indicators of rape. The physical tortures were more gruesome than those inflicted on Ivan's previous female victims. He had graduated from simple assault to mutilation. He severed her head by sawing it off with a large hunting knife. Over a hundred shell casings from Ivan's Ruger rifle were found at the scene. Many of the shots were discharged around Gabor to taunt him. Anya was forced to watch. Gabor was bound in rope with all struggles to break free from his bindings in vain. Ivan was becoming increasingly sadistic deriving great pleasure from inflicting suffering on his victims. 
April 18, 1992. British tourists Joanne Walters and Caroline Clark departed from Sydney with their sights on Victoria, where they would seek work at fruit farms with the intention of earning money to pay for the rest of their stay. They hitchhiked and took Ivan Milot up on his offer for a ride on the Hume Highway. Joanne and Caroline were bound, beaten, stabbed, viciously raped, and then murdered before being deposited under some brush. Caroline was chosen for target practice. Her remains contained ten bullet wounds. Joanne was stabbed to death. February 26, 1971, Karen Rowland disappeared. Her skeleton was eventually discovered close to Fairburn Pine Plantation Air Disaster Memorial. She was later presumed to be a victim of Ivan Milot. Many other corpses were found on the veritable highway to hell where Ivan Milot robbed and killed his victims, but they were not all officially attributed to him due to lack of evidence. November 13, 1987. Peter Letcher decided to hitchhike his way to his parents' house in Bathurst. His bones were found a year later by a trail in the Genelin Caves area. Peter was found lying on his stomach. He was partially camouflaged by tree branches. He was handcuffed, shot with a 22 handgun, and stabbed in his back repeatedly. There was some speculation that he was raped, but by the time he was found, he had decomposed to such a degree that such details were difficult to ascertain. September 6, 1991. Backpacker Diane Panaccio departed from Bungador and set off for her home in Quienbian. Her body was found two months later by Forestry Commission staff in Talaganda State Forest. She had been covered in branches. Otherwise, she was naked from the waist up. She had been raped. A single carefully executed incision was made on her spine, which rendered her paralyzed. She was stabbed in the second thoracic vertebra. September 1992 Hikers discovered the bodies of Caroline Clark and Joanne Walters. October 1993, the remains of James Gibson and Deborah Everest were found. Police began searching the area's forest in hopes of turning up more evidence and bodies. They found the skeleton of Simone Schmidl. They found a pair of pink jeans at the site that had belonged to Anya Habschied. She and Gabor were found near a fire trail. Police offered a $500,000 reward and a full pardon to any accomplices in exchange for the confirmed identity of the perpetrator. Paul Onions caught the news reports about the hitchhiker murders and cooperated with the police investigations, identifying Ivan Milot from a stack of photographs as the man who robbed and assaulted him. The police did not take the possible cooperation of Ivan Milot for granted. He was known to be violent. He was also known to be armed to the teeth. They had his home under surveillance, which became obvious to Milot, who, at one point, observed the police through binoculars. The police dispatched 50 officers to his home. 
they surrounded the house on all sides, with officers kicking down the front door. They found Ivan in bed naked with a woman. They searched the house to find Milot's arsenal of guns, but they were not found, though his prized Ruger rifle was discovered on the premises. Ivan's siblings, loyal as ever, helped him, with Wally taking the guns into his home. Milot was arrested for the abduction of Paul Onions. It was one way to get Ivan off the streets and advance to the rest of the investigation. The police were able to obtain warrants to other homes frequented by Ivan Milot, and they found the rest of his weapons at Wally's house. Alex Milot was interviewed and was found to have been deceptive in his previous interview. Backpacks that had belonged to Ivan's victims were found in Alex's house. Both Wally and Alex were brought up on weapons-related charges. Among the many items in evidence were the bullets that were proven to have been discharged from Ivan's Ruger rifle. July 27, 1996. Ivan Milot was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for each murder charge. His appeals were rejected with his destiny to leave prison in a body bag. He tried on multiple occasions to escape from prison, but failed. Milot decided to prove to the Supreme Court that he was serious about his appeal by mailing his severed finger to them. He botched the amputation, and the finger wound up in a hospital's disposal unit. He went on a hunger strike so that the prison staff would provide a Sony PlayStation for him. Request denied. October 17, 2019. Ivan Milot died of esophageal and stomach cancer at Prince of Wales Hospital at the age of 74. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now.